morning. I'm Shihoko Goto. I am the Deputy Director for Geoeconomics with the Wilson Center's Asia Program. For those of you who find yourselves at the Wilson Center for the first time, a, a very big welcome to you. Uh, the Center was established in 1968 as an act of Congress. It is a living memorial to President Woodrow Wilson, who remains to this day the only American president with a PhD. Um, we are partially funded by Congress, and therefore we are uh, staunchly nonpartisan in a very uh, polarized city. Um, we focus solely on international affairs, and I am really delighted today to be able to introduce a topic that is probably on the minds of many of you, uh, competition and cooperation, redefining Asia's economic objectives. Um, this week, in particular, uh, the financial markets have not been for the faint of heart. Um, this week has been particularly difficult in terms of assessing perceived threats and assessing uncertainties. But beyond you know, corona, beyond pandemics, there are obviously much bigger concerns that we have about the global economy and growth in Asia in particular. Um, I'm hoping today that we can use the 90 minutes to identify some of the sources of near and longer term risks. Um, some of them, of course, include uh, what, how we see the uh, shifts and the rules of trade and the commitment to open markets. Are we going to see more managed trade? Is populist sentiment going to be driven by economic nationalism going to be what really defines the rules to um, of engagement of countries. Um, what about the changing regional order in Asia? How are we going to manage economic relations with a regional hegemon that is of often also a security risk? Um, how do we manage relations with many countries' biggest security partner when the economic objectives may not necessarily align? And I'm hoping, too, that we can end on a happy, more upbeat note and look for ways to move forward, um, identifying some of the common goals and opportunities for cooperation. Obviously, these are all very big themes, and 90 minutes will not necessarily be adequate, but um, big ideas. We have big minds here at the table, and I'm really delighted to be able to introduce our speakers from my left, uh, your right, is uh, Shujiro Urata, who is a professor of economics at the Graduate School of Asia-Pacific uh, Studies at Waseda University. Uh, next to him is Kent Calder, Vice Dean for Faculty Affairs and International Research Cooperation. He's also the director of the Edwin Reischauer Center for East Asian Studies at SAIS. Um, to next to him is Shintaro Hamanaka, who is a public policy scholar here at the Wilson Center. And he's on, um, on leave at the moment from the Institute of Developing Economies of Japan. And finally um, uh, is Kent Hughes. He is the Chief Economic and International Trade Advisor to the Wilson Center's President and CEO. Um, he was um, previously an Associate Depre Deputy Secretary of Commerce as well. Uh, before we begin, I would be remiss if I did not thank, extend my gratitude to the U.S.-Japan Research Institute, USJI, which represents some of Japan's biggest um, and brightest minds um, through its top universities. 
of which obviously Waseda, which uh, Professor Murata hails from and is the person my alma mater, um, uh, represents. So with that, I would like to invite uh, Professor Murata, who has come the furthest, to be here with us. Goto-san, okay. <coughs> uh, thank you very much for the introduction, and I'm very happy to be here. <coughs> I, I'm sorry, I just learned that this uh, center was established in 1968. And as a matter of fact, I was uh, in the United States as an exchange student, <coughs> high school exchange student from 67 to 68. And 68 is the year that uh, all the students from the world uh, came to Washington before uh, they departed to uh, their own country. So uh, this 1968 was a memorable year for me. And again, I'm very happy to be here uh, back in Washington. <coughs> What uh, I'd like to talk about today in maybe less than 10 minutes is Japan's uh, free trade agreement or, or economic partnership agreement policy, which is a very important uh, trade policy for Japan at the moment. Um, uh, this has a lot to do with the uh, points which uh, Goto-san raised, uh, regional economic power and, and uh, free trade, uh, free and open trading system and so on. Um, Japan's first free trade agreement was with uh, Singapore in 2002, and Japan was, in my view, a very kind of passive participant in this uh, free trade agreement uh, uh, race, so to speak. And Japan was approached by Mexico first, uh, by Singapore, South Korea, and Japan was kind of hesitant to uh, uh, accept this kind of invitation. Uh, because Japan, uh, uh, at that time, thought that Japan benefited a lot from multi-trade uh, trading system uh, under the, uh, those days under the GATT and WTO. So uh, they thought having a bilateral uh, or, or discriminatory arrangement such as FTA uh, uh, would bring them negative impact. So. Uh, they were, like I said, quite hesitant in participating in discussion. But if you remember, uh, this is like 1997, 98, or 1999. This is a period when uh, Asia was suffering from Asian financial crisis. And uh, many countries, uh, uh, I guess led by South Korea's uh, Kim Dae-jung, uh, was very eager to have a regional cooperation. Among form of regional cooperation was free trade agreements. So Japan decided to uh, accept this invitation and then had a uh, FTA with Singapore. And then uh, Japan's uh, position or the FTA changed uh, in early 2000, in my view. Uh, this was because the uh, China. Uh, China approached ASEAN, Association of Southeast Asian Nations, to have a, 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 a FTA covering uh, China number you know one country and then ten ASEAN countries so eleven country uh, 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 FTA and Japan uh, reacted very quickly by following uh, China uh, approaching ASEAN uh, and to uh, have uh, to start negotiations and that was the time when Japan became more. Uh, uh, you know, uh, aggressive toward FTA, uh, more proactive uh, toward FTA. And that's how Japan's FTA began. 
<coughs> and since then, uh, Japan, uh, um, uh, quite a few FTAs, and at the moment, uh, Japan has 17 uh, FTAs in action, uh, uh, involved in uh, negotiation with uh, four uh, FTA negotiations. Uh, one of the accomplishments, in my view, was uh, CPTPP, Comprehensive and Progressive uh, Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership. Uh, as you may know, uh, Mr. Trump withdrew the United States from TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, in 2017 uh, when he became the president. And since then, uh, Japan took uh, initiative to uh, uh, conclude FTA involving 11 uh, remaining countries, and it took them uh, less than one year to do that. Uh, so uh, that was, in my view, was a very good uh, uh, performance on the part of Japan because uh, uh, having FTA is a one way to keep or maintain a free and open trading system, particularly considering that the WTO is not really functioning uh, uh, well, uh, as well as uh, we expected. So, um, and then uh, now Japan is uh, involved in uh, negotiation of uh, regional comprehensive economic partnership. Uh, it's called RCEP, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, involving 16 East Asian countries, 10 ASEAN countries, uh, CJK, Japan, uh, China, Japan, Korea, and India, Australia, and New Zealand. And I'd like to see this uh, concluded uh, successfully uh, uh, as soon as possible. Uh, one reason is because uh, as, uh, I, I kind of uh, uh, regret to say that the U.S. is uh, becoming very protectionist uh, country, and in order to uh, uh, keep uh, open and know, free and open trading system, I think having uh, FTAs, particularly so-called mega FTAs, FTAs many countries would uh, uh, be very important. So uh, I'd like to see the uh, conclusion of RCEP negotiation as quickly as possible. And at the moment, the uh, obstacle is India. Uh, India is uh, not very keen on uh, having FTAs with other countries, particularly with China. Uh, because uh, India has a huge trade deficit vis-a-vis -vis China. So again, uh, this you know, mentality, having a, a huge bilateral trade deficit is a problem, is very similar to what Mr. Trump is <laughs> uh, a way of thinking. But at any rate, so that's the problem. Uh, we, uh, and Japan uh, and some other countries like to see India to be involved, included, because India is a democratic country, and if India is not you know, included, then uh, uh, many countries are concerned that China's uh, uh, influence will be uh, much greater. So, um, I was hoping that uh, when you know, Mr. Trump uh, visited India, uh, I know this didn't happen, but uh, if I were Mr. Abe, Prime Minister Abe, I'd ask uh, President Trump to persuade India to remain in RCEP uh, because it is very important vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. You know, so, but uh, apparently, I don't know whether that happened or not, but if I were uh, a, a prime minister, I'd do, the, do that. Uh, let's see, uh, how, how many minutes, a few more minutes? Can I? Uh, <coughs> now let me just uh, end by uh, giving you some 
reasons why Japan is uh, uh, keen on having FTAs. One, of course, is uh, for economic reasons. Uh, Japan's economy is likely to shrink, uh, if it is shrinking already. Japan's population started to decline before 2010. Uh, and uh, uh, if this uh, past trend continues into the future, Japan's population at the moment is about 120 million, would go below 100 million. Uh, that means uh, domestic market is shrinking. And for Japanese firms to continue to be competitive and to uh, uh, perform well, they need to uh, expand the operation in foreign countries, uh, particularly countries where uh, economic growth can be expected, that is Asia. Uh, so uh, FDA will help uh, Japanese companies to uh, expand the operation uh, in a free trade kind of environment. Uh, that will help them to uh, 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 promote trade and investment. So that's one reason. Another reason is to uh, promote domestic reform inside Japan. Uh, FDA means opening up our economy. Uh, opening up our economy means more imports more uh, foreign direct investment. That put pressure on Japanese uh, economy and Japanese companies and Japanese sectors. And so I'd like to see uh, FDA uh, uh, trigger this domestic reform in Japan. Uh, a third reason is the uh, uh, providing economic uh, assistance, economic cooperation to the FDA partner countries, particularly Asia. Asia needs more infrastructure. Asia needs a lot of uh, uh, human resources, uh, you know, improvement in human resources. And FDA can help uh, Japan do that. So uh, FDA is a very important means to provide economic partnership. And finally, um, to main, uh, this is a point that I repeat, I'm repeating myself. Uh, FDA is one way to fight against protectionism. Uh, uh, and so, uh, these are some of the important uh, reasons why Japan is pursuing FDA uh, strategy. Uh, let me end with this. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, <coughs> I, I know that you have to leave a little bit earlier than the others, so perhaps I can ask you. Whatever. Yeah, yeah I do, but you tell yeah. me. Okay. Well, um, First of all, let me say I really am delighted to be invited to join this. Our uh, three participants here are all people that I've known for a long time and that I respect uh, very much. Um, Hamanaka-san was with us last year at the Reischauer Center and is a very acute uh, e uh, economist who uh, is very comfortable in both public policy and also academic settings, and I know has a wonderful future. Um, Professor Rata, of course, one of the most distinguished um, economists of regionalism, and Kent Hughes from his days on the Joint Economic Committee. I, I've always been impressed with his work, and I'm glad that he's playing the role that he is now at the Wilson's Center. Uh, my perspective on all this is a little bit different, um, and I don't want really to blow up a dis discussion of uh, the 
East Asian political economy, um, which of course is an important subject. I've worked a lot on that myself. But I do think that uh, in an era both of globalization, but also of um, ways in which the Eurasian continent is being sharply re reconfigured, um, we need to think about the changing meaning of geography and the, the, and the right sort of parameters for regionalism. The last uh, five books that I've done, five of, I guess, six, have had to do one of them uh, on uh, the other one really dealing with some of the issues, domestic issues Professor Rata was just talking about, uh, domestic rigidities inside Japan. So I haven't lost my interest or belief in the importance of, the, of Japan in the overall scheme of things. But the others have to do with the nature of the regions that really are meaningful from a policy and an empirical point of view. I know uh, Hamanaka-san also has some interest in this. So let me mention what I do think the analytical problem is. Um, the relevant parameters of, you know, that involve both Japan, China, and the world these days really I don't think are the region from Hokkaido, say, on, on the northeast to the border of Myanmar and Bangladesh on the uh, west, which we've conventionally considered to sort of be delimit uh, East Asia. Both subregions, um, for example, Northeast Asia, are uh, becoming more important, and also broad interactive relationships across the continent. If s some of you may know my latest book, Supercontinent, which basically deals with the kind of transformation we've seen in the last 20 years in Eurasia, driven by but not exclusively related to the growth of China. And it's much more than simply China. It's a matter of the transformation, I think, in an era when, of course, e-commerce and the internet and some degrees of deregulation are also changing the, the parameters. But I think it's worth our while thinking about the changing meaning of geography, in an including in the economic sense. One of the reasons I'm so interested in this panel, we have distinguished economists, but the parameters, economic parameters, are being affected by both the rapid growth of China and secondarily India, um, and the relatively slower growth, but the massive scale of Japan, and also technology. Um, so the configuration of Eurasia and East Asia, and any unit that you want to pick, I think, within that is very different now in the geoeconomics. I was happy to hear that uh, the Wilson Center has established some, is thinking about analytically about geoeconomics because I think this has great implications for geopolitics, uh, uh, geo the interaction of economics and geography as well. Um, China is surrounded by 14 countries. It's right in the center of the populated uh, portion of 
East Asia, Eurasia, however you want to look at it. And um, when it's weak, as it was in the first half of the 20th century, of course, this means that it's susceptible to an encro encroachment from the outside. And, um, but conversely, and of course one can't s just say categorically that China is strong today. It has its feet of clay and not most recently even on black swans like pandemics that we just have seen recently. But that said, there's a geographic centrality which in times of prosperity gives it a projective capability if it's connected to the region which transforms the geopolitical, the geoeconomic meaning of the region itself. That isn't to say it can't be offset. I'm a Jap Japan specialist and a deep believer in US-Japan relations. Needless to say, I think offsetting that development is important, but that doesn't mean we can ignore it. Um, so how does this relate to the current situation, my just brief intervention? Um, well, first of all, connectivity becomes a key variable, but it cuts in different ways, both economically and geopolitically. E connectivity, of course, if you can exploit complementarities, you could increase economic growth. Some of the considerations that Professor Rata was just mentioning. At the same time, of course, given the centrality of China in the entire equation, and also its efforts to become a maritime power as well as a land power under the Belt and Road, which of course has both dimensions, and China's been quite active in developing ports, and uh, groups like Costco, of course, are playing a large role in transportation and so on. So it's got both dimensions to it. But connectivity also has geoeconomic, geopolitical uh, implications. So that is the fundamental <coughs> force within the eastern part of Eurasia. The other one that I just wanted to highlight, because I think it shows us the importance of some new parameters for analysis. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, relationships across the continent, the combination of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the rapid growth of China, both as a market, as an exporter, and so on, creates a deepening relationship across the continent and it's not only China's Western horizons, as my colleague Dan Markey, who has a very good book uh, from Oxford on relations with the Middle East and Central Asia. It's not just that. It's the, the relationship of Europe and uh, China, particularly, and then the gro global implications of that. Um, so the, those, those, to me, are, are the important forces that are driving the continent as a whole. And so how can they be offset? Or how should they? Or, you know, we're all a believer in a stable, prosperous system. I don't think anybody wants to go into war or cold war. Uh, uh, but I think one should understand the way that the region and the world is, is changing. Uh, I think Japanese activism is quite crucial. And Professor Rata pointed to some elements uh, 
that I think are important in offsetting the combined force of, of this new transformation of the Eurasian continent that's underway. TPP-11 is one part of it. Um, Japan's ODA cooperation, it's the, the largest donor in Asia, and of course it has downsized considerably, partly just because China has graduated, and that I think is a reasonable proposition. In, in the environmental and the energy area, I do, and healthcare, one certainly hopes that Japan and China can cooperate, but certainly it doesn't need the development assistance with its current huge surpluses and rapid growth. But India, Japan's relations with India, exactly as he mentioned, Japan's support for TPP-11, broadening uh, uh, to, to the extent that it is possible of more rule-based system, although I think it should be noted that RCEP has, exactly as he said, has had real trouble getting its feet off the ground. Um, um, Japanese relations and Korean, uh, Korea has an important role here in offsetting some of these tendencies, although it, even more so than Japan, of course, has been drawn into this vortex of a deepening and rapidly growing China. Um, the, um, though, you know, Japan and Korea's offsetting role, but across the continent as well, Japan's involvement with Europe. You know, Chancellor Merkel has been, I believe, to China 13 times in her uh, time, and of course, German investment across the continent in sectors like autos and electronics has been very rapid and, and important, and Germany's largest trading partner is China. And to the east of, of Germany, you take the socialist countries that historically were deeply in, involved with, uh, with China in the days of socialism, and those relationships are re being reestablished as well. So, um, you know, Japanese activism across the continent, to my mind, is important. Um, and let me, the final point I would make is I hope that we can head, and I've, we've been admonished to be optimistic, so I will say I, I do hope for this, uh, a rule-based system. And, but I do think the forces that are in operation, and this isn't only in China, it particularly in China, but not only, to some extent, I think American policy mirrors some of the problems that we, we've seen within Eurasia also. And maybe this is inevitable, um, but a rule-based system, I, in my book I talk about the con contrast between a rule-based system and a distributive system. Uh, a distributive system where you can allocate very broadly to, in, in a finely tuned way to groups uh, across a broad range of categories. Infrastructure is perfectly suited to this. The Belt and Road in its essence is that sort of a program. For that matter, Japan's quality infrastructure project also is, which could be an important offset. But distributive 
uh, approaches, case-by-case -case approaches, bilateralist approaches, are, politically speaking, the easiest thing to do. Rule-based systems are certainly wonderful and, uh, and from an economic point of view that Professor Rata knows so much better than I, um, are preferable. However, in the world that we are in, to what extent are we going to be able to realize the rule-based system? What are the implications of more distributive approaches? I think we have to discuss uh, those matters in some detail. So those are some of my thoughts. Thank you for that rich analysis, Kent. Um, so changing nature of regionalism, uh, changing nature of trade rivalries, what does this all mean for the regional economic architecture? How can we move forward or is, is this kind of, are we going to see greater divides? So those are some of the issues that I'm hoping Kamanaka Khan can address. Okay, thank you very much. I would agree everything what Kent, Professor Kent Cardo said, except one thing, that is, I am economist. I was economist, <laughs> but I'm no longer economist. <laughs> oh. Yeah, but anyways, anyways, I agree that geography is getting very important, but what I want to talk in seven, eight minutes today is what is the difference between geoeconomics and geopolitics? Of course, geography is important, but how that geo-perspective affect economics and politics slightly different. This difference is very small, but I, I think still very important in understanding what is happening in Asia with regard to regional cooperation. So there are two important differences. First is idea of balancing. Second is rule setting. So rule-based order is important, but who set the rule? That is the important part. So let me start with the balancing. It's very difficult for us to find a country, major country in the world, who have, who formed security alliance with both United States and China. Big countries seldom have um, security treaty with two giant countries. But it's very easy for us to find countries that sign trade agreements with both United States and China. This fact really illustrates the difference between economics, geoeconomics and geopolitics. And uh, of course, in the case of uh, geopolitics, balance of power is very important. Countries need to sign form alliances for their survival. Unless you have good sec security partner, you cannot survive. That's the basic idea. You need to find a good security partner. But in the case of economics, situation is slightly different. Why countries sign FTAs? Countries sign FTA to avoid the over-reliance on one economic partner. So they want to have many partners to, to, to have a, a trade with, uh, they need to have many good trade partners to avoid the over-reliance on one partner. And how to do that? In particular, in the case of Asia, giant country, or Asia Pacific, giant, two giant, giant countries are China and the United States. And some country sign FTA with both US and China. Example, typical example, Australia and Singapore. They have bilateral FTA with both two countries and they are involved in both TPP and RCEP. This is how Australia and Singapore maintain the equal distance from China and the United States. 
The other option is not to have bilateral FTA with them. Typical example is Japan. Japan didn't like bilateral FTA with China. Japan didn't like bilateral FTA with the United States. This is Japanese way to maintain the equal distance from China and the United States. And Japan tried to be a part of both TPP, including the United States, excluding China, and be part of RCEP, excluding the United States, but including China. This is Japanese way. And what is very interesting is that India also fall under this category. So I would argue that one of the reasons why India decided to withdraw from RCEP is, of course, as Professor Urata mentioned, domestic reform, domestic economics is also important. But one reason is that it's very unlikely that TPP with the United States will fly. Ideal situation for India was that India be a part of RCEP, including China, and India eventually become part of TPP, including the United States. But the United States already withdrew from TPP. So even if India joined TPP, balance between US and China cannot be maintained from Indian perspective. This is, I would say, one of the reasons why India decided to withdraw from, or become very reluctant to RCEP. <coughs> so how, what, type, what type of game Japan played between US and China? In my view, Japan played a very good game between US and China. Japan manifested the interest to be a part of TPP in 2011. And after that, United States requested a bilateral negotiation between US and Japan before Japan getting a seat at the negotiation for TPP. And Japan gets frustrated because Jap United States requests a lot, and the request was, list of requests was very long. And at that time, Japan agreed with China to launch RCEP negotiation. So what Japan actually did is use the China card. If you do not let us to have even a seat at the TPP negotiation, we have alternative. That is a Japanese, that in my view, this is the reason why Japan started RCEP negotiation. So in, in immediately after the RCEP was launched, the United States agreed Japan to have a seat, J Japan to have a seat at the, the TPP negotiation table. So in my view, Japan did a very good job, but now Japan is facing problem. Why? Because the United States decided to withdraw from TPP. Japan keeps, a, it's very difficult for Japan to maintain the equal distance from China and the United States. Why? Because Japan's trade is start to get dominated by China. So in 2015, uh, 2005, in Japan's total trade, United States is 17.8%. China was 17%. United States was still bigger. But if you look at 2018 figure, this is the latest, share of Japan, uh, share of United States in Japan's total trade was 14%. China is already 21%. China is 15% bigger. That's the reason why Japan feels start to become a bit reluctant to RCEP. If you have only RCEP and there's no TPP with the United States, we cannot keep the, Japan's economic reliance on China is getting too big. That's the reason why Japan decided to negotiate uh, bilateral FT with the United States, although that is not, not an optimum solution. Okay, the second, let me move to the second topic, uh, which is the rulemaking. Everybody says that the rulemaking is important, rule-based order. But the question here is who set the rule? There's, there's still difference between geoeconomics and geopolitics. Geopolitics, power is very simple. Power means basically means the military power, and the powerful country rule the world or rule the region. That's it. But in the case of economics, who is powerful is not really clear. And that also depends on the issue area. 
which is more powerful, Japan or China? Some issue, maybe China is more powerful, but some issue, Japan is still more powerful. So it's very difficult to say which is more powerful in the case of economics. That's one of the reasons. Uh, that is a critical difference between security or geo geo geopolitics and geoeconomics. But in order to have, uh, in order for a rule to set, two things should be set first. First is membership. Second is agenda. So before rule should be set, or be before rule is negotiated, two things should be set, that is membership and agenda. Um, <coughs> membership is very important because this is because who can sit the negotiation table? As I said, Japan was unable to get involved in the first stage of the TPP negotiation. That makes the Japanese influence on the overall negotiation smaller. So who can be at the negotiation table is very important, and sometimes exclude and invite is a very good strategy. You are, some country is, is excluded from the initial stage of negotiation and treated as a latecomer to the negotiation. That is a Japanese case to TPP. The other possibility is that certain countries are perfectly excluded from the negotiation stage, and once rule is set, countries are invited. So this is a typical example. Some, some proponents say that China should join TPP. But this means the rule, when the rule is set, China's voice will not be, is not heard. But once rule is agreed, you should follow the rule. This excluding and invite. This is one of the essence of the rulemaking uh, uh, of the membership setting. The other is agenda setting. Agenda setting is, is also very powerful. I was involved in the WTO negotiation in the past, and the powerful way to have negotiation in Geneva in the meeting is that is not agenda. We cannot negotiate. That's outside the mandate of this meeting. This is the most powerful way to guide the discussion. Even very, very small country can do that. So we can argue that this is already, that is not that scope of the argument. So yes, TP, uh, some trade arrangement is important, but we need to have more developing friendly things that is already agreed. That kind of way of negotiation is very important. And how can we ev evaluate the Japan situation from that regard? I think, again, Japan did a very good job. Japan and China have very disagreement in the past about the Asian uh, the trade arrangement in East Asia. China insisted good, good-centric agreement. FTA emphasizing trading goods among 13 countries: ASEAN plus Japan, CJK, Japan, uh, China, Japan, Korea, and Japan insisted SEPA, uh, SEPIA, the uh, uh, compre comprehensive economic partnership among 16 countries. 13 plus Australia, New Zealand, India, and that agreement put big emphasis on services and investment rather than trading goods. And eventually, RCEP negotiation launch is following Japanese template because that includes services, investment, and that includes Australia, New Zealand, and India. So I think Japan and China was fighting about the membership politics and agenda setting. Japan was successfully reflect its interest to the RCEP negotiation. And second is the U.S.-Japan bilateral deal. Again, Japan did a very good job. Why? Because the first stage of the negotiation mainly cover only trading goods and some part of the electronic commerce, but services and investment are excluded. Japan, what Japan always fear is a service sector liberalization, and that is already excluded 
So Japan was success successfully manipulated the agenda. Of course, that is consistent to the U.S. Trump administration's interest that the tariff is important. But what is very in interesting is that Japan, that is really consistent to Japan's interest that we don't want to negotiate uh, services at this point. So I stop here. I want to talk more, more things, but I stop here. But I forgot to mention one thing first. This is really my personal opinion. I seldom exchange view with um, Japanese officials because I don't want to get influenced. And this is not, the, I, I, I realize that I defend Japanese position, but this is not really, that I'm not talking on behalf of Japanese government. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so Kent, you've been with the Commerce Department, you were president of the Council on Competitiveness, you were with the Joint Economic Committee. Is the United States playing its card right at a time when there is so much change in the rules of engagement and agenda setting and being part of the group or not? Well, thank you for inviting me to be on this panel. I feel I've gotten an, uh, a good education just listening to the other three people here. And I'd only Shihoko could manage to have two Kents on the same, uh, <laughs> on the same panel. Well, what uh, I thought I'd approach this question by recognizing that it's not easy to say exactly what will be the American approach and what will be American interest as, uh, as the U.S. defines it. We've had a real shift in approach with, with President Trump. Uh, there are suggestions that uh, Bernie Sanders, Senator Sanders may well be the Democratic nominee. So I tried to look at what traditional interests might be, traditional leadership, and then what I characterize as more populist uh, interests. And then uh, when Bob Zellick spoke here, he reminded us that the goal of a trade negotiation is to get it through Congress, which means you're always dealing with major interests inside the United States. And I would just take a quick look at how the world has changed in the sense not only of supply chains, but really global companies. I think that most global companies in Europe, uh, even Japan, which was much more nationalistic at one time, that they, are, uh, they see the world as their oyster and that changes the influence inside the respective countries. Well, what if Hillary Clinton or John Kerry had been president or uh, Mitt Romney or John McCain? I think you would have seen a similar approach to international relations and to international trade that uh, had those other individuals ended up as president. I think they would have probably worked to ratify the TPP. There were already serious talks about other countries in line to join the TPP with an interest anyway, Thailand, Indonesia, Philippines, and so forth. And the U.S., I think, saw this as a traditional approach to international relations and international trade, but also as something of a counterpoint uh, to China and to RCEP. There was a the traditional export interest. They wanted uh, market access for particular uh, American goods. Uh, there would have been a, an approach of negotiation, I suspect, rather than what you might call tariffication. Um, there would not have been the same emphasis on bilateral trade deficits, uh, and even not as much concern about the, uh, the large and persistent uh, current account deficits. They would, uh, it would not have just been traditional. Uh, I think there would have been a realization that uh, China has a very different approach to economic growth and that creates challenges for 
certainly for Europe, Japan, and the United States, that uh, there might have been more of a going back to the Clinton area emphasis on competitiveness, which would imply a range of uh, not only international competition where you're focused on productivity growth and uh, the actually the emphasis then was that the, the gains would have been, been uh, widely shared and there might even have been a, a, a few uh, flirtations what, uh, which would add up in other people's minds to a limited industrial policy or that is generally a word that you can't use in polite company in the United States. The, the new leadership, President Trump's leadership, or what you might think of as a more populist leadership, that uh, President Trump, as you know, focuses very much on trade deficits uh, and bilateral trade deficits. Uh, Sanders, I think, would continue to be, have a, a very careful approach to trade, seeing it in some ways as a force which has contributed to growing inequality in the United States. There's been an erosion here in the confidence with regard to globalization that it's really going to work so well for everyone. Uh, I think both um, uh, either uh, uh, President Trump or Mr. Sanders or another more populist individual would certainly uh, pay attention to the national consensus that China really is a genuine challenge. And as I said, partly because it has a different system. To some extent, the U.S. faced this with Japan in the 1980s, that people were shocked, business people were shocked, not only by Japan doing so well in so many industries, but they did it so differently. I mean, I remember when I first started working on U.S. Uh, on US trade, and uh, the next month I was working on U.S.-Japan economic relations, and there was this sense, my gosh, but they coordinate with industry, you're not supposed to do that. They subsidized exports, they manipulated currency. There are a lot of things that were so different that would have been, most economists say, just a prescription for disaster. Well, it wasn't a disaster in, in Japan where it was setting the, the world, at that time, the world records for growth. So I think that sense that, uh, that China is a challenge. Uh, so far, President Trump has been more defensive in his approach in the sense that he's supported restrictions on uh, uh, a more careful look at foreign direct investment. Uh, he's also been a bit more aggressive on export controls with uh, high tech, uh, high technology goods. He, uh, in July, it doesn't get much attention, he asked all agencies to talk about the nature of their understanding of the U.S. defense industrial base going down to the third tier supply chain and looking at the aspects of civilian industry that participated. Now, so far, I have not seen this put to, put to use, but it could, of course, allow a much more activist role if you said, hypothetically, semiconductors are really important to us. How do we look at that supply chain and so forth? Uh, there has not yet been the uh, the move to having any sort of what you would call a broad-based investment strategy that would be part of making the U.S. more competitive. But in a, a striking departure from past practice, Attorney General Barr, thinking about the competition with Huawei, suggested the U.S. make a major investment in both Nokia and Ericsson. <coughs> so this is quite a departure in, in thinking and may 
may presage other moves by the Trump administration. Uh, I think to some extent uh, future trade agreements will also be influenced by the USMCA focus on worker and workers' rights. You may remember that Sherrod Brown, who had been a skeptic on trade agreements, supported the modernized, the updated uh, USMCA. And uh, that was a, he emphasized that this was more focused on the uh, benefits for the average worker. I think this is going to be true. The reality is, too, that the environmental interests in the U.S. Are, are stronger than they were 15 or 20 years ago, and that's also going to show up in new agreements. And in fact, uh, Michael Froman did a masterful job, I think, in working with the Congress and working with key interests. Well, what about the global companies? Again, they look everywhere for, for opportunities. They generally work to be good citizens wherever they are. I know the Council on Competitiveness a few years ago had a look at uh, innovation policy, and IBM was the private sector partner, and they looked at similar moves all around the world. So the more innovation there is, the better it is for global companies. They, uh, however, have hardened their own views a bit with regard to China. If you read recent the recent reports of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in China or the European Chamber of Commerce, EU Chamber of Commerce in China, both of them politely would be saying, we don't feel as welcome as we used to. We're concerned about intellectual property theft, the forced sharing of technology to participate in the, the Chinese economy, concerns about what they often felt were arbitrary regulations. So that, that will also influence trade policy going forward, whether it's populist or more traditional. There's also been a striking report by the Business Roundtable, which advocated for shifting from shareholder-only interests to stakeholder interests. That's something that was more typical, at least in the U.S., in the 1950s and 60s. They, uh, they generally, uh, the, the major companies here, are often active supporters of education reform. Uh, you may be familiar with the, the reform that came out of uh, the, the partnership between the state governors and, and private businesses. This was the Common Core, it was called. And I think they will continue to be actively involved in supporting education. There's also the, this whole context is taking place in a very different time that we are ever more aware of global challenges, challenges that can't begin to be solved or taken on by a single country or even a small group of countries. The, uh, the COVID-19 is a good example of how the whole world has to react to the, pro the, the prospect and response to a potential uh, global pandemic. And there are just a whole host of other problems. The question of demographics, the demographers say we're going to have two billion more people here by 2050 or before. Well, we're, how is that going to lead to accurate uh, shelter? The old Roosevelt, you know, one third of the population was ill-fed, ill-housed, ill-clad. And that would be then compounded by this challenge. And the only answer would almost surely be an enormous amount of, of innovation. And there is some of that going on that's quite global in its, its reach. If you went to the website of the National Academy of Engineering, you'd see a list of global challenges. 
and the National Academy here meets every other year with the Royal Academy and the Chinese Academy, which have similar lists. So it, it emphasizes that going forward, where almost everyone says, well, we're really going to be competing with China, perhaps the new India and so forth, we also are going to be, need to be very active cooperators. The, um, the other element, the whole context in which this takes place is what uh, Fareed Zakaria famously called the rise of the rest. So it's not that the U.S. has declined in any sense, but that there is a dramatically different world. Uh, and then the recent foreign affairs, um, the, there is a, a, an article by, by Graham Allison talking about the return of spheres of influence. I'm not, it, that is a little different now because the supply chains are so into such an integrating force, but that is something again that will be taken seriously. The Bretton Woods institutions are trying to modernize themselves. The WTO, one of our colleagues mentioned that it's not working quite as we wish it would. And part of that is that you have a one country, one vote structure, very unlike the IMF and the, and the World Bank. And the, this growing tension of, with regard to globalization and the sense that it's, it is not really serving us as well as we hoped it would. And I think that feeling will influence the, the way trade negotiations are, are approached in the future. Well, let me stop there and we'll all welcome whatever uh, easy questions you might have for us. Thank you, Kent. Um, I know that Kent Calder is preparing to leave now. Um, before you go, there are a couple of things they want to share. Sure. Or I can just leave or and tell, leave. let everybody else answer. <laughs> yeah, either way. very broad, um, but it seems to me that uh, uh, despite its comprehensiveness, there's sort of one thing uh, missing in our attempt to look ahead. And one of it is to do with the um, health crisis mm. that we had. It's a global one. Uh, the global warming is a global one. Mm -hmm. It affects obviously different parts of the world differently. But we haven't really got a global institution mm -hmm. which really can look at these things from a global perspective rather than thinking of it in terms of agreements between states and, uh, and nations. Have you any thoughts on mm. Maybe if I might just take a first cut, uh, because this mirrors a point I think that uh, Kent uh, Hughes eloquently presented earlier, uh, issues relating to cooperative security. Of course, we have competitive security in a world of these rivalries that we've talked about. We certainly have the cooperative uh, dimension as well. Um, this particular, I'm, uh, for, I mean, I'm not a specialist in this area. I'm from Hopkins, but I'm, it's just a long ways from my area. I, I think this will pass. I mean, we um, 
you know, we'll have in another year, year and a half, we'll have virus, we'll, we'll have, um, you know, we'll have some resolution with the countries in question, first China, at least two, several of the ones that are uh, involved, I would say Korea and China particularly, they have efficient enough systems, uh, of course massive, but uh, they'll, we'll, we'll see this, even if you take the Spanish influenza of 1918, you know, what did it continue for, a year, year and a half? No doubt in the short run, there's something here. Uh, in the longer run, we'll go back to longer run trends. But that said, you make a very important point that we need, we need new structures of global governance. The one thing I think that we need to think about is broader structures of, of governance that have more of a multilateral character than we've seen recently. I mean, bilateralism, distributive is easy to do, um, but ultimately the rise of new, new powers in the world and also new levels of governance, you know, the rise of cities for that matter and supranational forces too. It's not simply the nation states, but certainly in a new pattern of governance, China has to have, I think, a more substantial role. And uh, as Japan, it's not on the Security Council uh, as a permanent member, Germany isn't either. I mean, there are many deficiencies in the current system of, of global governance. I think you're just pointing to two things. One, there are a lot of cooperative security issues that we need to deal with, and, and secondly, the pattern of global governance needs to be revised and it's got to be more inclusive. So I agree very much on those. But with that, I uh, look forward to what everyone else has to say. I think this really is something we have to wrestle with. You do have various international agreements, sometimes even international treaties, but the enforcement mechanism is almost always absent. So that one of the things to, to think about. I, I, you look in, at the past and you remember the international agreements One at one point there was an attempt to limit the number of battleships that would be made and so forth. And again, none of them have been known for their success. I do think one of the great transformations has come with the, the spread of information technology and the growing interest in something like climate change and what should be done about it. So it may be that we need to make sure that, that that process continues and you begin to convert people. I would bet in almost every major country there's a strong environmental movement now. So that would then create the, the political base for individual countries to start to move in the right direction. But this, uh, and, and there really isn't any reason why we couldn't have a small amount of money relative to the rest of expenditures that's put in to support, let's say, the different commissions that say, where are we going with regard to immigration over the next 30 years? Two billion more people, declining birth rates in, uh, in Japan, Korea, much of Europe, the U.S. So there, then these ideas hopefully have uh, a life of their own. But I don't see in the short term a, 
rise of international government that would have enforcement power to do the kind of things that most of us worry about. I just want to add one thing. I think your term global institution is really good. Many people say global governance, but what about global institution? When we say global institution, we always think international organization, but that's not enough. So we really need to think about the role of non-state actors, like, like NGO and other things. And global governance and regional governance and national level governance are all, all interrelated. And I think what is very important at the national level, how to have the good regulation, regulatory governance, including health sector. But having said that, I really agree that we really not need to have something global institution other than international organization. Think of li like uh, Davos. Davos is global institution, I would say, uh, but I don't think they, are, they want to implement something. They want to have free discussion. That's really good, but how to implement Davos, what, what is agreed or what is discussed in Davos? Mm. That is, there's a big, huge gap. Inter does international mm. organization hear what agreed or discussed at Davos? Maybe uh, that's not unlikely. So that kind of things we really need to think about that. So we need to think not only just the vague term of global governance, what are kind of global institution which cover both, both the, the nation actors or state actors as well as non-state actors. Can I just make, make one point about this global governance and in maybe uh, a country uh, who I think should uh, maybe bear the burden of a kind of, you know, uh, maybe financing or you know, financing. There are many ways to uh, kind of support this kind of global, global governance. What I'm trying to say is that big countries like the United States and China, they can benefit by maybe you know, pursuing so-called America first or China first policy, uh, at least for the short term. But what we need is a global growth, so you know, healthy global uh, economic growth. And for that, uh, it is important to have a very stable and transparent and uh, maybe free and fair global governance kind of structure. And here, again, uh, some countries have to bear some burden. And I think it is the, uh, I like to see, I mean, U.S. used to play that role very constructively, very maybe actively. Uh, but after a while, now U.S. is now looking more inward, uh, America first policy. Uh, like I said, that may give benefits to the U.S. for the short term, but that does not really lead to uh, long-term gains, even for the United States, for the rest of the world, of course, as well. So I'd like to see countries like China. Now, of course, you know, China, in terms of per capita GDP, is much, much lower than that of U.S. or Japan, but still, being a large country, uh, they uh, have to take some responsibility. Um, I guess it's easy for me to say, coming from Japan, asking the U.S. to take that kind of initiative, but uh, uh, I'd like to see that happen again that uh, we saw earlier. Thank Michael, thank you very much for that um, question. That provoked a lot of um, <coughs> um, comments. Um, I actually want to, before I open the floor, I, and I actually want to ask about our substitute professor, Rata, and Hamanaka-san, but before I do that, I, I do want to add one thing about Davos. Um, there were a number of interesting developments at the Davos meeting this year, but one of them, which I thought was particularly interesting, 
was that the founder of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, went on to talk about the spirit of Davos has really altered since he established it. And so he established this forum as a way for stakeholders, non-government stakeholders, to have a voice in governance and in public policy. And so it has evolved into this forum where they, they have a lot of non-state actors and a lot of wealthy people and a lot of um, hedge fund managers, et cetera, but they're not necessarily reflecting the voice of the world and the grassroots movement. And when we talk about fears of globalizations or the downside risk of greater integration, we're not talking about some of the issues that really are facing the world, such as addressing issues related to um, inequality, as well as to those um, really big borderless issues like climate change or when we dealing with pandemics, etc. Um, okay, so with that, um, turning back to the idea of RCEP, um, there had, yes, we did talk about um, India um, probably not wanting to join RCEP and it probably will no longer be part of the discussion, it's to be seen. Um, but the reluctance of India, if India is not part of RCEP, does RCEP still remain as attractive for Japan? No. <laughs> well, uh, ASEAN, uh, Association of Southeast Asian Nations, they like to play the role of uh, so-called, you know, central uh, role in pursuing uh, RCEP. And Japan and China uh, are taking a position which uh, of course, they are very interested, but they know that if Japan takes the lead, China will object, and it's, you know, vice versa for China. So uh, China and Japan, uh, in my view, kind of uh, decided that uh, ASEAN should take a, uh, a leading role in uh, moving this uh, uh, RCEP negotiation forward. So, uh, but again, in reality, Japan is very interested, China is very interested, and ASEAN, they didn't. They don't want to be uh, kind of, you know, squeezing between India and China, and uh, lose the position. So uh, it's very interesting <laughs> configuration. Uh, so we've been terribly patient. Um, there is a microphone. We are recording this, so if you could wait for a microphone. Um, Stanley Kober, on. On global growth, we're talking about trade, but it has stalled out in the last 10 years. If you look at it through the 20th century, but since the financial crisis, mm. it just kind of wiggles and doesn't go anywhere. And I'm um, struck a recent report by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Since 2010, um, non-investment grade bond issues account for more and more of the corporate debt in the world. And it says, this indicates that the fault rates in a future downturn will likely be higher than in previous credit cycles. When you consider what we just went through with the financial crisis, that is, to my mind, a very worrisome <coughs> statement. I'm also struck that something Governor Kuroda of the Bank of Japan said a couple of months ago. It's not as if we can deepen rates in negative rates indefinitely. If low rates are sustained for a prolonged period, and they've been for a, a long period, that could hurt financial intermediation, translation, banks. Again, 
just a few years after the financial crisis, and focusing so much on trade agreements, mm. I, I'll put it bluntly, are we obsessing over a pimple when the global economy is it's confronting a melanoma that's growing? Very, very uh, good point, uh, I may, uh, being a trade economist, I, I, I don't, I, I kind of try, uh, try to uh, give my excuse, but uh, uh, your point is uh, very well taken, and I know oh, there, there are lots of debt being created, not only in the government, companies, and household, you know, so uh, uh, or maybe we're at, we're at the verge of uh, uh, seeing another uh, financial crisis that we saw in 2007, uh, so you know, so I mean, trigger can be anywhere. Maybe China. Uh, I, I don't know about this uh, coronavirus uh, impacts on uh, financial situation in China, but uh, we've been kind of warned that the many Chinese local governments are in deep debt, and if that you know debt be kind of uh, brought up in the uh, surface, then we may, uh, uh, again, experience another crisis. But I think your point is very well taken, but I, I really don't know how uh, uh, the countries uh, should really respond to this kind of possible crisis. I'm sorry, that that's all I can say. Uh, uh, Bank of Japan. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Th that is my secret career, so I don't want to talk about that. But I think trade, <laughs> <laughs> trade is still very important but not trading goods. Trading goods is no longer increasing, that is true. But trading services is increasing. If you look at the official statistics, they're not really increasing. But actual trading services is increasing. If you look at the WTO negotiation, there are the four modes of trading services. One type is a trade go across the border. So if you give the lawyer in one country, give a legal consultation in another country, that is services go across the border. That is mode one. The other one is a lawyer go to the partner countries. I know. Uh, yeah, no, the consumer come to the lawyer's country <coughs> and have a consultation, so consumer move, that is mode two. Mode three is a supplier, the law firm move to the partner countries and uh, give legal services there, that is mode three. And mode four is the individual lawyer move to the partner countries. But anyways, so what I want to say, the service is getting more and more important, but, but that is not captured by trade agreements. So what is important, for example, Starbucks, go to China and you have a huge sale. That is trading services by WTO definition, but it's not captured by typical trade data. So of course, United States is no longer exporting products, but they are exporting huge amount of services using local presence in China. Starbucks, KFC, hotel chain, Hilton Hotel as well. That is really increasing. So it is wrong to say that trade is not increasing. Trade is increasing, service is increasing, and particular mode of service trade, mode three of trade, which use the commercial presence is increasing. And this really relates to the domestic regulation of the partner host country. This is what we are negotiation, we are negotiating in any FTA, including WTO. So we, I agree that the tariff is symbolic, important, but what we are negotiating is no longer trading goods. Value chain important, but I would say the service chain is much more important. There are a couple institutions that do worry about the kind of thing that you've raised, this <coughs> growing debt. You've got the Bank for International Settlements. You have the 
G20 meeting that really covers about 85% of the world economy, the finance ministers get together. I guess we probably ought to make, pay more attention to whatever those minutes are that come out of those meetings. But that, uh, there are institutions that should be worrying about that and thinking ahead to the fact that we always have a financial crisis, we just can't predict them. Since we are in the United States and uh, now you are in the middle of a presidential campaign, uh, I'd like to ask uh, a person here uh, about the, uh, what will happen to, say, uh, U.S. economic, economic growth if a uh, person like Sanders, which is a very protectionist in my view, uh, but at the same time, I mean, he has a point. It is very good to have a better or maybe more equal distribution of income and wealth. The point here is that the, there's, I think there's a balance which we, we need to see. Uh, on the one hand, economic growth. On the other hand, kind of uh, more equal distribution of income. Uh, I'm not quite sure these are kind of, uh, you know, trade-offs between these two. But uh, in my view, if, um, uh, I mean, what are we observing is that the economy, U.S. Economic economy is doing very well, partly thanks to Mr. Trump, maybe, you know, uh, lowering uh, 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 um, tax rate and so on, uh, structural reform. Uh, but the uh, income gap is growing at the same time. Uh, that is a uh, very worrisome uh, development. On the other hand, if uh, Sanders became president and tried to achieve more equal distribution kind of uh, economy, that's fine. But what will happen to economic growth? Uh, what I like to see is uh, economic growth and with better uh, 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 income distribution. Uh, can we expect uh, that kind of outcome from Mr. Sanders, uh, 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 you know, uh, up whatever approach that uh, he's trying to take? That, that's the question I want to <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> since uh, uh, you know, I've been watching uh, this uh, uh, candidates' uh, debates uh, last uh, few days or last few weeks, uh, I'm just uh, eager to know uh, how you feel about uh, Mr. Sanders. He seems to be getting a lot of uh, 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 support. Okay. Yeah. I, I think Kent would be the best person to answer that. Remember, t Super Tuesday is next week. Um, <laughs> he is still not the nominee yet, and even if he right. is mm. uh, the nominees, and he still has to win the election. What is interesting, though, is um, the, the demographics of the supporters of, mm. of um, Saunders and Elizabeth Warren, um, who are more to the left, greater left of center. Uh, they are young people. And they feel very marginalized and disenfranchised, and they are very worried about uh, not being able to um, have a secure economic future, yeah. and that the current uh, model they perceive as something that is much more of a winner-take-all system yeah. that they cannot be part of when they have to worry about paying student debt and, and health care. Um, and these are probably issues that Bernie Sanders has really been able to to uh, address, so Kent. <laughs> <laughs> this is, of course, this, we are strictly nonpartisan, so I'm trying to be analytic <laughs> in my comments here. I think that the Shihoko alluded to the fact that there were large numbers of Americans who felt 
not only neglected, but I would say disrespected. That if uh, my colleagues here, if we'd just been doing a series of talks, say in Nebraska and Utah and Arizona, and then we would come back here to be interviewed by one of the TV stations, the first question would be, well, tell me what flyover country is really like. <laughs> so most of the news here comes from Washington or it comes from New York, and people get pretty tired of being flyover country. There, if we had an, an American Dream Index, it would show that housing, educating your children, thinking about your retirement, all of these traditional American Dream goods would be rising in price much more rapidly than the cost of living and much more rapidly than wages. So I think these, this plays into this, uh, this anxiety. What about uh, the, the next set of macroeconomic policies? There is a new theory that's gaining some traction in the Democratic Party called modern monetary theory, which is go ahead and spend whatever you want. All you have to do is print money to pay the interest, and there's no problem. Well. Most people are skeptical of that, just as they ended up being skeptical of so-called supply-side economics, where you cut a tax cut and it always paid for itself. So it could be that you'll see, uh, under a Sanders administration or a similar administration, a good deal of spending on things that some of which would really foster U.S. competitiveness. Uh, we really have plenty of infrastructure that needs to be modernized that itself can not just provide employment but also make you a, into a more competitive economy. Uh, I Really, nobody has articulated much of an overall growth strategy. It's very different than other campaigns. And there, uh, it, the other issue that has simply never come up, the press doesn't ask about it, is having a trillion-dollar deficit. Uh, I did policy for a presidential candidate some time ago. And we agonized over how could we have an initiative and find a way to pay for it. Well, now we have trillion-dollar deficits projected for the future, and it's virtually disappeared from the political discussion. So it's, it's a, a mystery to me. So, and and I, because there has not been that, much of the emphasis has been on uh, distributional equity not distribution in the sense of picking particular industries, but the, uh, the sort of social needs of the population, that it's hard to know what exactly the detailed economic strategy will be. I mean, I've got one, but nobody's called me, so. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Uh, Robert Delaney from South China Morning Post. I just wanted to go back to the point that was made earlier about how uh, how shocked uh, many other countries in the international community was about the fact that the way China had developed, that is, the coordination between government and industry, sort of shocked many people in, in that they actually have succeeded in growing the economy and redeveloping the economy. I'm just trying to get an understanding of uh, outside of the U.S. and outside of China, how much are other countries, how much is this of an influence is this having on other countries? So we're talking about spheres of influence, right? And we're talking, and China's offering itself up as an alternative development model. 
and uh, so I just wanted to get some thoughts on on how much this uh, this proposal or this alternative model is is how attractive is it to other countries at this point? Thank you. Well, I just came out with a short book on Chinese economic growth strategy, so I'll try to to take this on. China has a three-part growth strategy, in my view. They borrowed a great deal from Japan's economic miracle. The one difference is that they've really invited all kinds of foreign direct investment. Japan did a little bit of that, again, expecting IBM, for instance, to share its technology. There is still the Soviet heritage there. There are 150,000 state-owned enterprises in China, 50,000 of which are national, so it's easier for the government to coordinate with them. And as they become much more globally oriented, they have used foreign direct investment both to get natural resources, but increasingly to acquire technology. If you listen to a speech by Xi Jinping, he would be quick to say, you want to grow developing world, look at us. We're the model. And of course, they may look at as an alternative the United States, which seems somewhat um, at, at at odds with each other in terms of our, our domestic politics. So I think that if people look closely, however, that you have uh, cultural differences in China compared to the rest of the world, as Japan did. I've become a great believer in the sort of Confucian ethic in terms of education, that if you looked at particularly Japan and Korea, they really did not have the raw materials that other countries had, and they had people. And it is just uh, uh, amazing, the dedication to education, that Japan had traditionally not only a longer school day, a longer school year, after school school, and Saturday classes. They eliminated Saturday classes. They slipped a little bit on the international uh, assessment uh, that comes out every other year or so on science, math, and reading. And the prime minister came out and apologized and reinstated the Saturday classes. When you see the coverage here of the program on international student assessment, maybe it appears on page 16 of the, of the New York Times. So we're not as education-focused as we should be, in my view. So I think that there are a lot of things that China is doing that others could do. They, they created infrastructure, which sometimes was to just keep the economy going in the wake of the Asian financial crisis, but also really they were set to make it more feasible for them to participate in the global economy. So if you look, say, look at Africa, they had a lot of old infrastructure which dated from a colonial period, which often was export-oriented. So they could certainly take that lesson from, uh, from China and apply it. And again, the, the education, education, education is so central to the future. I was giving a talk in one of these uh, USIA tours and giving a talk in English in, uh, in Moscow. And, and I said, what do you think the key thing is? And I said, education, education, education. And everybody laughed. I was puzzled. And then I was told that that's what Lenin used to say. So <laughs> I don't want to so <laughs> Yeah, I, I think uh, education is a very important uh, part of their success and how competitive the uh, like uh, university entrance exam is and so on. But uh, what I like to say is two things. One is uh, 
if you are a country to catch up with the you know, leader, say the United States, uh, you have a target to uh, try to achieve, and that gives a lot of incentive and a lot of uh, opportunity for country like China, Japan in the past. Uh, and it's not, I, I wouldn't say it's not that difficult because you have a target already. Uh, and that's one reason that uh, China is catch up, catching up very fast. One of the reasons, not, you know, uh, in addition to education, they have been doing quite well in economic policy, except maybe state owned enterprises. Uh, macroeconomic policy is quite, quite reasonable. So uh, this uh, catching up uh, uh, thing is one. And the other is the demography. Uh, you know, China still maybe enjoys a so-called demographic dividend or bonus, but that will disappear very soon. In my view, China's economic growth will decline very rapidly. By 2030, very low, like the US, Japan. Uh, and demography is so important. We can explain Japan's low economic growth mostly by you know, demography. Uh, our population is declining already. S labor force started to decline in 1990s. What you need is increased productivity to maintain or to achieve economic growth. And that's what we failed in Japan, I think, in my view. So what China needs is to improve in productivity, that is to reform state-owned enterprises and so on. Otherwise, uh, I, would, I would say that China economic growth will be going down quite rapidly. Um, by maybe like uh, 2040, 2050, China will become just one of, I mean, a large country, but GDP will be exceeded by maybe possibly the India, Indonesia, <coughs> and so on. Demography is so important. China's population has declined, start to decline in 10 or 15 years. So I think that's the one of the reasons that China had a miracle already, but uh, in the future, I, I don't think this miracle will continue forever. One minute? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I want to give uh, some answer from the regional perspective. There's Asian Development Bank and uh, in, uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Yeah. ADB is led by Japan, US, and the AIAB led by China. There's a big difference, right? ADB is Development Bank, just like World Bank. So just constructing bridge is not <coughs> enough. If there is no environmental protection, you need to help country to have environmental protection law first. Only after that, you can construct bridge. That is Development Bank. But infrastructure, uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is not like that. If countries do not want to have investment protection law, that's fine. That's your problem. I don't want to intervene you. And if given that there's a low, low standard of law or absence of law, I can help you bridge, construct bridge. That is Asian <coughs> Infrastructure Investment Bank. Japanese Americans do not like that idea. If there is no environment, environmental protection, we need to help them have it. But Chinese against that, why you need to intervene domestic issues? And I would, I, my sense is that the Chinese idea start to win support from other Asian countries, in particular the least developed countries. So if even at the, not at the national level, regional level, there's some idea of competition about what the role of development, that very restricted rivalry between ADB and AIIB. 
Well, um, I know there are other questions, but I'm afraid the time has come for us to go our separate ways. But before we do, um, I would like to thank um, USJA again for allowing us to host this event and bringing Professor Urata here in particular. I also want to thank um, the Asia Program's current intern, Liku Kawakami, who is um, a student at Waseda who is, visiting, uh, who is currently with um, American University. Um, I also want to thank you for being here, and if you could please join me in, in thanking our speakers for being here. Thank you. Thank you.